Welcome to A Matter of Principles, a podcast of the Association of Washington School Principals. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Arend, Associate Director with the Professional Learning Team here at AWSP. We are excited to bring you Inclusion 360, a special podcast series that will bring the inclusion discussion full circle. Inclusion 360 is the culminating event wrapping up our year of learning, exploring, and implementing inclusionary best practices and diving deep into how to be an inclusionary leader. This work has been made possible by a generous grant from OSPI. Our AWSP team has assembled some of the most dynamic and sought after inclusion experts in the country to bring you this special six episode series. This podcast series will feature Ladera Korn, Keith Jones, Dan Habib, Lauren Katzman, Alfredo Artiles, and Glenna Gallo. And that's not all. On May 10th, you can meet this amazing team of experts for a free live webinar. You do not want to miss this event, so go to our website and register for the Inclusion 360 live webinar. For now, enjoy this podcast series. The Association of Washington School Principals is very proud to be part of our State Department of Education, the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction's Inclusionary Practices Project grant. This grant has allowed our Principals Association to meet some incredible people, to work on some really great supports for our school leaders around inclusion and inclusionary practices. The project that we're working on today, we are calling Inclusion 360 and AWSP has gathered voices from across the nation that are doing amazing things and having a positive impact on all things inclusion and inclusionary practices. And today I am thrilled to be sitting here with Dan Habib. Dan Habib has just finished up a series for our Principals Association, How to Be All In as an Inclusive Leader. For those people listening and, and watching, if you have not had a chance yet to meet Dan Habib, Dan is the Inclusive Communities Project Director at the University of New Hampshire's Institute on Disability. Dan is also a filmmaker with lots of award-winning documentaries. Some titles to those are including Samuel, Who Cares About Kelsey, Mr. Connolly Has ALS, Intelligent Lives, and many more. Dan has received the Champion of Human and Civil Rights Awards from the National Education Association and the Justice for All Grassroots Award from the American Association of People with Disabilities. The list of accomplishments could go on and on, Dan. It is just such a pleasure to have you here talking with us today. And as we welcome Dan into this Inclusionary 360s conversation, we want you all to know that um, we're going to focus today's conversation around the family and school collaboration in special education. Dan, you're coming to us today from New Hampshire. How are things in New Hampshire? Oh, things are great. Thank you, Jack, so much. And to everyone listening today, um, things are good. They're cold, you know, but we're looking into spring and with some sense of optimism and hope now that we are getting shots in arms and, and hopefully getting back to whatever the new normal will be. Yeah, whatever that's going to be, no kidding. That is that is such a sign of hope, and we can all see the light at the at the tunnel at the end of the tunnel. So, thanks again for joining us, Dan. You are um, such an advocate for family and school collaboration when it comes to students and their if they're being served on an IEP and how schools can work with families and families can work with schools. So, that had to start somewhere. And so would you just mind talking about how that passion began for you and, and kind of like where it's led you to today? Sure. You know, I, I honestly had very little connection to disability before my son Sam was born. So I think to be clear, it's not like I became an advocate the day he was born. I think the first couple of years for my wife and I and for our older son Isaiah was honestly a lot of confusion and fear and uh, uncertainty about what this meant for our family and for our lives and, and most certainly for Samuel's future. We were really fortunate at about the age of two for my wife, Betsy, to discover a leadership series that's actually run through the Institute on Disability, where I now work, but I wasn't working there at the time. And that leadership series was a boot camp in disability advocacy for Betsy and learning how to navigate the educational system, the healthcare system, the legal system, you know, the benefit systems, all these systems we weren't born to, to navigate. And when she finished it, she said, Dan, you have to do this. Like if we're going to be on the same page and stay in a strong marriage, you know, we have to 
be of one mind on some of these big topics. And so that leadership series got me, first of all, it got me up to speed on the laws, the laws like the IDEA law that your audience is so familiar with and the Americans with Disabilities Act. We got to meet incredible advocates from all over the country who had lived a life of disability and and who were able to teach us lessons in navigating it. Um, But I think more than anything, it taught us that we needed a vision for Samuel and that vision couldn't just be fear and panic and stress, which we were feeling. It had to be something more. And that more became this sense of belonging. You know, we wanted him to feel like he belonged in every aspect of our lives, in our family, in our extended family, in our community of Concord, New Hampshire, and and most certainly in his local neighborhood school, because we truly couldn't imagine a vision of belonging that didn't involve him feeling like he belonged in his own school. So that's really where the inclusive education journey started. Yeah. So. So tell us more about that. Like how when you entered the the system, right, the school system of having a, a child that's going to need some supports through the special education department. Tell us about that, how, how you entered that and what that was like for you. Sure. Well, I'm sure folks in your community know that the age of three is a big milestone um, in terms of transitioning from early intervention when you when you have an identified disability uh, at that point for a child into the school system. So I think that's pretty universal. That age of three is a big point of transition. So we wanted Samuel to go to the same private preschool that his brother went to. Um, there's no public preschool in New Hampshire for typical kids. It's all private. And he went to a, a lovely preschool in town. And so we wanted Samuel to go to that preschool. We were going to pay for the tuition. Um, and all we wanted from the school district at that point, as he became part of the school district at age three with this, uh, with an IEP, was that they would send services to this preschool, OTPT speech, basically. And, and to be honest, they resisted. They, they said, well, we have a perfectly good developmental preschool for kids with disabilities. And in one case, there was a, a 50-50 split. But we really wanted Samuel to be included, you know, alongside his peers, with his brother in the same school. And, and although we have a very good and collaborative relationship with our school district, this was one of those moments that my advocacy kicked in because the special ed director came to that initial transition meeting and said, you know, how can I go to the school board and advocate for extra money to send services to the school when we have a perfectly good developmental preschool for kids with disabilities? And I just said to him, listen, don't ever bring up your budget in these IEP meetings. These IEP meetings are about Samuel's well-being and how he's going to thrive in education. And I know you have those concerns, but that is completely inappropriate to bring up your budget issues during an IEP meeting. You know, and he never came to another meeting, so I'm not sure it might have had an impact. But again, I mean, I, I, we have always gone into this collaboratively, but I think we've also learned there are times where you have to know your rights and, and advocate for your child. And, and I remember a parent once told, to me, told me, you should never feel ashamed for advocating for your child. You only get one chance at this parenting thing and, and don't ever apologize for advocating for your child. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you, here you are as a family and you want the best for your child. And and sometimes I'm sure families and parents have shared with you, gosh, we just need to trust what the school says and, and we don't we don't want to be that family. Um, and so, I don't know, you, you, you've talked with literally hundreds of families and parents and students who have to access the system and things like that. Do you, do you often hear common themes from them about about their experiences? I do. I mean, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. I've, I've literally spoken to thousands and thousands of parents and families uh, over the last 13 years I've been doing this work. And one theme I hear way too often is that they're, they are told when their kid is four or five years old that they can't go to a public school, that their disabilities, whether it's Down syndrome or autism or using a wheelchair or whatever it might be, disqualifies them from from being in kindergarten in a public school. And it it breaks my heart because that is not the law. I mean, the law is the least restrictive environment, as you know, with the supports and accommodations to be successful. And so I believe strongly that every child should have the right to to start in what is the most universally designed environment on earth, a kindergarten classroom, you know, um, with those supports. And so I I do encourage families and and help educate them on the law and their rights and the the issue of least restrictive environment. And, um, and, And unfortunately, some parents really have to push the school districts hard and other parents in many school districts are welcomed with open arms into that kindergarten. But I also emphasize the, the, the data, you know, the fact that 30 years of research now, it's irrefutable that kids with disabilities 
who are included alongside their typical peers learning the general education curriculum are much more likely to have better outcomes academically, socially and emotionally, in terms of post-secondary success around higher education, employment, behavior. I mean, there's absolutely no counter evidence to, at this point. So I think knowing your rights and then knowing the, the research is very empowering for families. And I try and say that whenever I possibly can to other families. Right. And so so here you are and you, you're at this meeting and this special ed director says to you and your wife, you know, the budget. And you politely in your very Dan Habib way say, hey, don't ever mention that again. And um, <laughs> but but as as Samuel starts to enter preschool and and the kindergarten thing, what, what were the lessons that you and Betsy learned or or that you are seeing as ways that families do need to advocate and different things that might be aiding them in the success of, of accessing these services. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that we experienced the, that kind of stress in that initial meeting. And he did, by the way, end up going to that preschool <laughs> that we wanted him to go to. But I, I think that we started seeing just how stressful this process could be. And a lot of other families I've talked to feel that same level of stress. And I, so part of my work has been how do we how do we build relationships with schools that start to lessen that stress? Because what we saw in, in him going to that preschool was beautiful, actually. It was kids organically supporting each other. That peer model support just happens, you know, and, and he, he literally started making friends in that preschool that he's still friends with today and that we wow. still encounter in the community. So I think we also understood that having Samuel meet a broad array of kids was really going to increase his chance of having a vibrant social life. And I heard a really powerful stat years ago um, from uh, from a lecture I went to, and the stat suggested that the average person without a disability needs to meet about 25 other people to make a friend with one of those people, to feel that kind of connection that you want to be friends with them. The average person with a disability needs to meet 250 people in order to meet one person that they want to connect with as a friend. So yeah. if, if we make the mistake of segregating kids with disabilities into very isolated groups, we have ex dramatically limited their chance to make social connections, to make friendships. So, so I think that, you know, what, what I've learned is that inclusion certainly has helped Samuel academically, but it's also profoundly supported his life socially as well. And, and I really also think it's helped his sense of self-determination. I mean, we, in a school, just like in the family, you know, you're given choices all day long. You don't even realize it sometimes, but you know, what are you going to, what shirt are you going to wear in the morning when you get dressed? And what are you going to have for breakfast? What homework are you going to choose to do first? Those are all choices that can be made in school at home. And I remember Bob Williams, uh, a great disability rights advocate, gave me that advice. that Just give Samuel choices at every juncture. That's the most important thing you can do to help him build his sense of self-determination. And so I also talked to other families a lot about that, about giving your kids choices at every juncture to let them build self-determination skills that will pay off huge dividends as they get older. Yeah. Gosh, I'm still kind of hung up on that statistic of the, you know, one in 25 and then the one to 250. Yeah, it was a guy named Al Condolucci. I just remembered his name. He was a, he's in Pittsburgh. He's a great advocate for inclusive education, Al Condolucci. He gave us that in a, in a report. It was really powerful. Yeah, that, that really is. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just curious to follow this journey, like with you and your family yeah. and Samuel and he enters and he enters the, the system. But, but what was the, Dan, what would you say was the most important element of starting to develop that healthy school-family relationship in those early elementary years? Yeah. Well, I think it was it was communication with the school. Like, I remember that when we first went to Samuels Elementary School at a preschool and started planning with them, they, they, were, they were on board for including him in general education, but they started talking about pulling him out for OT and pulling him out for PT and pulling him out for speech. And we, at this point, were... We're, had a, a real good momentum going from preschool where all those services were being delivered just in the natural course of the day. So we said to them, no, we actually don't, we really don't want him being pulled out for anything. And, and politely, but firmly said, we, want, we don't want Samuel to be continually pulled out of his community. And to their credit, they said, okay, well, we haven't really done a lot of that before, but we, we can try and make that work. And it worked for the five years or six years he was in elementary school. You know, they were delivering uh, OT, occupational therapy during art or during music. They were delivering physical therapy during recess or during gym. They were doing speech therapy in the course of a music class or whatever it might be. And, and there were times where, let's say with speech therapy, 
the therapist wanted to do something a little more invasive, like put, really do some oral motor work where they got their hands doing some exercises with his face. We showed up a little early to school those days. So he wasn't missing anything, but he still had that therapy. So I think that was that was really critical. And, and I also just think that that we made it a goal in Samuel's IEP that he would develop more and more peer support. That that was a value that we all had, that he would connect with the peers in his class, that there would be organic supports encouraged. And, and we would tell the paraprofessionals, if you're you're doing your job extremely well, if you're on the other side of the room watching Samuel interact with his, with his peers or watching him interact with the general ed teacher. And I think that brings up another really important thing we learned is the incredible value of paraprofessionals or aides, you know, whatever their instructional aides, what they're called in different districts. And, um, and they're often left out of the discussion, which is, which is awful because they are alongside that child in some cases most of the day or near that child. They are the best eyes and, and they need to be empowered and they need to be well trained. Um, so I think that was, that was really critical. That, that communication that went on early on was, was really important. Um, I, I guess one other thing I would say is, is when we have these meetings, and I think we'll talk more about the frequency of the meetings, but we would ask the, the teachers, what do you need from us to be successful? Or the administrators, how can we help you? Um, and that was really important to, to, to ask them what they needed to be successful and try and be collaborative in that way. What a great thing to ask be, or to offer up as a family, you know, as, as unsure as some families are about the process and what do I do, how nice to just say, hey, what do you need from us? Because here's what we need from all of you. And I think that just sets up a, a really nice collaborative environment where this is a this is a two-way street, right? This is um we're all we're all working towards the towards the success and in spirit of the student, the child. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a bit of a dance because you know, you do need to stand up for your rights. You need to show that you're an you want to show that you're an engaged parent and advocate, but you also want to give the school credit. You know, they're working hard, it's a very difficult job. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, there certainly is a squeaky wheel quality to parenting and education, but you don't want to squeak so often and so loudly that you become crying wolf to kind of mix metaphors a little bit here. <laughs> but, you know, and so I think that we would really try to pick our battles um, and, and, and hold the, the, the dearest values strongest. And I think that one of the things that became really apparent early on was we would ask the teachers, well, what do you need to be successful? They said, we need more planning time. Like, we just do not have the planning time we need, not just for your kid, but for a lot of the complex, you know, students that we're working with. And so we actually worked with our the IEP team, and we wrote into Samuel's IEP that there would be regular meetings or throughout the year. And, and they – they they would have like a standing team meeting, let's say once a week, a quick team meeting. We as parents and Samuel would come to those meetings once a month. And as, as most parents, I hope, know and schools know, a parent can call an IEP meeting anytime they want to. You know, and the only reason the school would would, I think, have a right to say no would be if, if we if we already resolve this issue. But there's so many issues to resolve and so many challenges that you rarely just tie things off with a neat bow. So we found by 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 pre proactively working with the school to schedule in a way that worked for everybody, a monthly time where we could all come together and say, what's working, what's not, how can we problem solve together? That, I would say, was probably the biggest secret to navigating Samuel's school year successfully was regular conversations with the school. And then you know, that's supplemented by the emails and the occasional phone calls, or for some teachers, they preferred to get texted or whatever. But but the biggest thing was those face-to-face -face, face -face time. Even in the, in the pandemic era, I think nothing replaces uh, the face-to-face -face time. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And just what, what great advice to people listening right now that it's about constant and authentic communication, right? You know, right. where are we? How are we doing? What's needed right now? I think when we wait months and months and months in between what, what is required to meet around IEPs, we can certainly lose some focus. And, and I would just add, you know, I think I, I've said this to many school groups, and sometimes I'll speak to an auditorium full of 400 you know, administrators and teachers and others. And I just see shaking heads, like, how could we possibly meet that often? And I, what I would say is, listen, any well-functioning organization has regular meetings, regular communication, whether it's, uh, you know, the Seattle Seahawks or Microsoft or Starbucks leadership. I mean, they're not just sitting back and not talking to each other for months on end. They have these constant forms of communication. So if we look at schools and family school communication as, as a fully functioning organism, 
there has to be regular discussion for it to function well. And you know what? It, it saves so many problems from building up that can be much more difficult and labor-intensive and time-consuming to solve if, we, if they're not addressed early on uh, before they become problems and also strengthen all the good things that are happening. Yeah, so so much easier to be proactive rather than reactive with all of all the intricacies of a plan and exactly exactly and and i just should say that we always tried to make sure the paraprofessional was at the table for these discussions along with samuel of course which we can talk more about well well let's talk about that because i was i'm curious as you and betsy were advocating for samuel and services and meetings and communication when when did samuel be part of that or did he become aware of his of his ip tell me more a little bit about that well, in terms of being a part of it, that's easy. I mean, he, he started, he was at that initial meeting for part of it, at least, that three-year-old meeting. Um, and he, at the beginning, even if it was just for him to come in for five or 10 minutes, show off some artwork at the beginning, he had just done, you know, flash that great smile of his, just just have whatever communication or whatever he wanted to share, right? I mean, kids love to share stuff about themselves. We found that really set the tone for the meeting to have Samuel, you know, this is about Samuel, this is about this kid. It's not a piece of paper. It's not a binder. It's not a folder. It's a, a little boy um, who has incredible strengths and some challenges. As he got older, he would come to the meetings for longer stretches of time. And by, by mid to late elementary school, he was there for those entire 30 to 40 minute meetings. You know, and, and it, the other thing it did is it really did impact, I think, in a positive way, the tone and the conversation of the meetings. We made sure that all these acronyms that we all like to throw around were broken down into much more simple terms, which I think was good for everybody. Um, and again, self-determination, if we were making a big decision that was going to impact Samuel's day or his education, he was going to have a say in that. And ideally, he would have the final say in that. And even if it's just a simple yes or no, I think every student, I hope almost every student has the ability to say yes or no at the very least. And I think that's all we were looking to from Samuelson times was like thumbs up or thumbs down on this idea. And if we've all felt strongly about it as a team, we would try and explain why, you know, and that would often be persuasive. Um, but I think that level of engagement and, again, that self-determination made him from a very early age understand these weren't just these random meetings where mom and dad were just coming and hiding in this room with these other adults. I mean, he understood what we were doing. So I don't think it was like one day where he understood everything. I think it was this gradual process of becoming more and more engaged in, in the process. And then in middle school, he started co-leading the meetings. And, and he would work with his special education coordinator to work on a PowerPoint, a simple PowerPoint agenda before the meeting. So he knew what was going to be happening, what was on the agenda. He could add to the agenda. And then he would actually click through the PowerPoint during the meeting and help you know, facilitate the meeting. And that in itself is a great skill, right, Jack? I mean, meeting leadership is something you probably have to do once in a while. Yeah. Well, what I, what, what's really um, making me think about what you're saying here is not only does the student need a seat at the table, they need a voice at the table. And they, they certainly need to, to add to or take away from uh, things that they are hoping for themselves. Um, so I, I, I know I've sat in on multiple meetings with students being served on IEPs and and sometimes inviting that voice in if that student is not used to that is is challenging but but boy the importance of their own voice with their plan is so crucial to that yeah and people need to be patient and they need to create space for that student to communicate it can be very intimidating for the parents let alone the student to be in this room with this table full of people i just i i just can't express strongly enough putting yourself in the shoes of that student, you know, walking into this room or rolling into this room with all these people and trying to represent yourself. So I, I, I think that needs to be, I think the whole model that I talked about a minute ago of having a student proactively help plan the meeting and know what the agenda is going in, that's going to be good for everybody. Again, just like it is for me as an adult professional going into a meeting, knowing what the agenda is, knowing who's going to be there knowing what the goals are. I mean, we have to continually remind ourselves this is what we do in quote unquote real life. Yeah. Why shouldn't yeah. it be the same for in, in an IEP meeting? Yeah. Nobody likes surprises, right? You want to go there and be prepared and, and represent yourself well and, and advocate for yourself. But that takes learning and some new teaching and, and skills that hopefully students will have in, well into adulthood. Exactly. And, and the other piece I, that I think is very important is during those meetings in Samuel's PowerPoint, he would 
we would set it up in a way, all of us together, so that the general ed teachers would usually go first in terms of giving some updates on how things are going, which enabled them to leave if they had to only be there for 15 or 20 minutes. But also, it would be a strength-based approach. So the first question was always, what's going well? And they could share about, you know, the great paper that Sam just wrote or the project he's working on or some great interactions he's having with peers. And that's a wonderful way to start. And then they would talk about what could be improved. So what's going well? What could be improved? I mean, those two questions allow you to get at pretty much anything you need to discuss, but starting with that strength-based framework. So, Dan, it sounds like as Samuel was was working his way up through grades at the elementary school, at some point you transitioned to secondary school. And when did you have to start making decisions or when did you know you start including Samuel on decisions about staying on a, a gen ed track versus different assessment tracks or wa- walk us through the viewers and the listeners, all these people walk us through that transition as he began to become an older grade. Yeah. I found that pretty confusing and I don't think it just started in older grades. I think it started in elementary school when they started talking about the alternative assessment or portfolio based approaches. Okay. You know, it sounds good, right. To think of, and, and maybe in education, ideally that would be the approach for everybody to a kid to turn in a portfolio instead of taking a big test. Um, but in many schools, and I think it varies a lot state by state, maybe even district to district. Once you start doing that alternative assessment or the portfolio based approach, you're veering away from a regular um, diploma track approach to education. And again, I don't know. I think it probably varies. I don't know exactly when when you have to make that ultimate determination. It depends on each each school district. But I felt like there was a time where we had to push a little harder to make sure Sam was learning the general education curriculum. And, and you know, we had great teachers who would like I remember a chemistry teacher in high school who said, listen, I, I couldn't even tell you right now, Jack, maybe, you know, how many elements are on the periodic table? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't. <laughs> I don't. She said, you know, ideally, right, that was like the goal was to get the kids to learn the periodic table. But she said very realistically, honestly, there's like a dozen elements that I really want kids to know. So I'm going to focus on these dozen elements that Samuel should really get to know. And and it wasn't diminishing for him because I think that was really what, what he was able to do. But it showed he was learning the general education curriculum and, and, and he was learning what the teacher really wanted him to learn in terms of those outcomes. And so I think that that was also a really big part of it was understanding there's not one straight, narrow way to get to your high school diploma, right? There's some really winding turns you can take. And again, that's where the accommodations come in and at times modifications, but still learning the general education curriculum. And we, you know, as you know, with my film work, I not only make films, but we do a lot of educational materials to go with the films. And with every film we have kind of very tight white papers on issues just like this. Like how do you create accommodations and modifications, but keep kids on the general education curriculum? So I was fortunate in that I was learning from all these national experts in doing the films while Sam was going through school. But so what I've tried to do is then transfer that knowledge to everybody else that I can reach, you know, but, but I have to say, I think it really helped me understand what Sam's rights were in terms of supports, accommodations, modifications while staying on a general education pathway because that was our vision that was his vision was to get a high school diploma go to college and and you can't you can't veer off that for very long without without losing the opportunity for that general education high school diploma interesting that you would say you know as you were learning from the experts while you were making these documentaries and stuff that that's what you've done for us here in Washington as we've been able to showcase your documentaries and and just learn from you um, that's helping all of us know as school leaders how to how to support families and advocate for students and uh, all of that so yeah good that's the mission of my work so i'm really glad to hear that yeah no it's it's been it's been great so let's talk about um what happens outside of school so what what might you tell the people listening right now what were you doing outside of school to, to be supporting Samuel and his and his determination and his interests and all, all of those things? Yeah, well, I think I think some of it was just what a lot of parents do and, and what we did for our older son. We supported him when he tried to pursue his passions. So when he, for example, was got excited about being in theater because his local elementary school had a great theater group. We supported very much, you know, his his opportunity and his schedule to be in the school plays, which happened outside of school hours. When he showed a strong desire to be involved in youth sports, we worked with the league and with coaches and and his peers to make sure he could have a positive experience in sports. And that could take up a whole hour on itself, just talking about his sports engagement. Um, 
he's he's big into car racing. Later today, I'm going to watch a NASCAR race with him actually. And um and and so he was really excited about the Pinewood Derby in Boy Scouts, which some people may know. These little wooden cars that are carved out. Um and he joined Scouts pretty much to race in the Pinewood Derby. And and uh, once that was done, when he aged out, he's like, I'm all done with Pinewood Derby with Scouts. I'm moving on. But the point is that I think those extracurricular activities are incredibly meaningful. And and they were successful in part for him. Because the same kids he was in school with all day, many of them were in these same clubs, sports, et cetera. So they knew Samuel rolled, moved a little differently, talked a little differently, used a communication device. So that was one big piece was supporting that. I think the other piece was we did what's something called person-centered planning from, a, from about the age of seven or eight. And the way I describe person-centered planning is the person, and it's often a person with a disability, it's often a younger person, but not always, is at the center and that person is given the space and the opportunity to identify their hopes, their dreams, their goals, their own vision for the future. And and sometimes to really map that out and often on literally on big pieces of paper, you know, and you have sometimes a, almost always a facilitator who can do what's called graphic, excuse me, graphic facilitation where they can draw out pictures and imagery, you know, and really make it very vibrant. And And then that person, Samuel in this case, brings together a group of people, peers, family members that they really trust and feel comfortable with. And we would bring, he would invite kids over for a couple hours on a Saturday. We'd stuff them full of pizza and soda and get them all jazzed up and ready to go. And then this facilitator would create these incredible activities and brainstorm sessions to enable Samuel and his peers to think of creative ways to achieve these goals. And what was so beautiful about it is not only did it create so many wonderful, uh, you know, visions and goals for Samuel's own life that he identified, but you saw all the kids identifying and talking about their own dreams and hopes and goals. So it became this group process of visioning their futures. So we had that about once a year, we would bring that kids like that together. And if you look back on some of the things that Samuel's accomplished in the 21 years of his life, a lot of them were born out of those person-centered planning meetings. Um, And I even did it for my older son once when he was struggling in high school. We went out for sushi and I said, I'll stuff you full of sushi for three hours because he loves sushi, which we, again, just had last night. But um, and as long as we can talk about let's talk about your hopes and dreams and goals, because he was really struggling. And we, we ended up making a dramatic change to his education based on that conversation. So it's not just for kids with disabilities, but it's very empowering and powerful for kids with disabilities. Gosh, you know. Who wouldn't? I mean, you and I have adult friends and even my own journey, right? Sometimes I need to to rethink where I'm going, where I'm headed, what do I want to do, and just yeah. kind of have a reset to um, or a refresh of, of goals and aspirations and next steps. Exactly. We actually did that with a close another couple of ours of close friends. We actually did our own person-centered planning meeting uh, a year or two yeah. ago where we just got together and did exactly the same thing. And it was really invigorating. Yeah. Wow. I want to talk about, um, because the people watching and listening right now are school leaders, elementary, middle, high school. We have policymakers that will listen to this, you know, district office, central office, whatever that is. Did you as a family see a difference in um, how frequently you met from elementary to secondary or did the, did the meetings change at all? I know you just talked about, you know, planning and goal setting, all those things, but was there much of a difference between elementary and secondary? You know, a little bit, but not dramatically. I would say Samuel's engagement and his leadership opportunities grew, as I talked about, you know, in terms of him co-leading the meetings. Um, you know, in middle school, it was interesting. They had an existing structure. Uh, and again, I think maybe other schools are designed this way, where they were built into teams of teachers and they had an existing structure where they already were meeting once or twice a week. They had pl- group planning time or group meeting time. So I think that was really made it easier in middle school in some ways than elementary school because we weren't reinventing the wheel. They already had these standing meetings. I think they were meeting like twice a week as a team. We then uh, scheduled once a month that we would come to one of those planning meetings to, to talk about Samuel's education. And they found it incredibly empowering, I think, the educational team, because Samuel, like a lot of kids, is a very complicated student uh, in many ways. And they found it so empowering just have these broad conversations about all this. And then the special ed coordinator throughout the year was continuing to update the IEP and add notes as we went along through these meetings. So it wasn't like the end of the year you're trying to create this whole new document. It had been being gradually updated all year long. I think that's a really important point because it actually made the work at the end of the year a lot easier. You know, they weren't all cramming to update all right. these students' IEPs from the ground from ground zero. So um 
so that was really important. I, in high school, we started meeting the same meeting schedule monthly, freshman year, sophomore year. And then I think we started moving to it every six to eight weeks. But we also started assembling and, and grew, getting together with a smaller team just on transition planning. And in New Hampshire, you're supposed to start transition planning by age 14 for kids with disabilities. I think the federal law is, is more like 15 or so. Um, but we we found that having a guidance counselor, the occupational therapist, who, like in many schools, was very involved in, in post-secondary transition, um, his paraprofessional always, special ed coordinator, uh, parent, myself, Betsy, my wife, and Samuel, and maybe one or two other random people. But the other thing is we started inviting external partners. Vocational rehabilitation would, would start coming because they're mandated to work on transition for kids. That's about 15% of their budget should be focused on transition for kids, for young adults. Um, we also invited the local nonprofit that was going to be serving Samuel as an adult once he turned 21 to start coming to these meetings. So everyone was getting up to speed and, and contributing to the transition planning. And we started talking more about transition and less about kind of the IEP as he got older and older. Um, so, yeah, I can't say that it, I can't say there was any dramatic cliff where everything just stopped. But again, I have to credit the school and the teachers and the special ed coordinators and the administrators for making this a priority and understanding the value of having these meetings and how much it would help everybody do their job well, and most importantly, help Samuel have a positive experience in school academically and socially. Right. What's the, what's the student's experience? And and meeting regularly from the whole team of support can only help progress and, and, and help the success of the experience of the student. I love that. Yeah, exactly. And give him more, give Samuel or another student more and more opportunities to speak up, to vocalize, to advocate for themselves, to, to yes. develop advocacy skills, develop those self-determination skills. It can't just happen in one. It's just it's almost yes. It's almost you know completely impractical to think of that happening in one hour and a half long meeting uh, that happens once a year. It just I can't even fathom what that would be like. Right, and I'm I'm reflecting on what you just said. All the skills learned by Samuel at these meetings, talking about okay, next steps, and 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 always being able to say, well, here's what I want. Here, here's my hope. Here's my dream, and yeah. that, that so the team is always aware of what we're working for and what we're working towards. Exactly. And, and here's how I can talk about my own challenges and my own needs. And that's, again, that's incredible. And that when Samuel and other students go to college or when they're in the workplace, they need to be able to enunciate their own support needs very clearly. And that's, that's critical. And that's a, another skill learned during these, uh, during these meetings. Dan, a common theme here is about really, really great communication, family to school, school to family, team, all of that. What are, what's some advice you would give a school leader if they um, of, of how to help families feel comfortable with that? So, some of the families are intimidated and and maybe don't feel like they do have that strong of a voice. But what what would you tell a school leader about helping families kind of get into the planning and and being a such an important team member? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. I mean, I think that if at all possible, and I hope it is in most cases the school leaders or the special ed director or whoever that family has a relationship with, um, they would reach out to the family and say, how do you best communicate? Or what do you need to effectively communicate? What do you need to effectively feel part of the team? Is there a certain time of day that you know is generally going to really work for you to come together or not? Do you prefer emails or phone calls? You know, I mean, a lot of schools now have text programs where you don't have to give away your phone number in order to make a text for a lot of families, that works great. I mean, we had a special ed coordinator who didn't mind getting texts. He would like to be able to just quickly text me during the day with a quick question or send me a, a video or a picture of a part on Samuel's wheelchair that wasn't working properly, you know, or FaceTime and, and problem solve that. So I think that I think that as much as possible, use the kind of modern day communication tools we have in other aspects of our life and apply those to school. You know, and obviously now we're in this whole new realm of people getting much more comfortable and equipped to do Zoom. Not everybody, but more comfortable with, with Zoom and FaceTime and things. But I, I also think, you know, communicating to the family, you you are a really valued and welcome member of our community. And we, we want you to be engaged in your child's education. And I say that because I've talked to a lot of parents and kids with disabilities who feel like they're perceived as being like the helicopter parent or the, or too squeaky a wheel if they're proactively engaged in, in their child's education. And listen, there probably are some parents that are holding on too tight and, and maybe not giving the kid enough space or the team. 
that I think that kid parents of kids with disabilities, I do think, are typically judged not always by the same set of rules as other parents who just want, who who just turn out to be these like great volunteers, you know, and want to bake cookies for the the bake sale and they want to be the chaperones on the school trip. Like they're just seen as these wonderful Uber volunteers. And I've talked to a lot of other parents who feel like they're being. They feel like they're they're seen as spies, you know, on how things are going. So I hate to be blunt about it, but I need to be because I've heard that from a lot of people. So I I just think creating a truly welcoming environment for families. um, And again, probably our most prominent form of communication is email, you know, just like in many other aspects of our life. It's just the quick questions, conversations going back and forth. But I think when it comes to more delicate or sensitive conversations or when stress or tension might be flaring up a little bit, I think those in-person, ideally, conversations are a lot better. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's, I would hope that it's every school leader's desire to create authentic communication, you know, good flow back and forth. And I think if I think about the journey you and Betsy went on with Samuel, it's it starts early, right? And it's the it's the school system of one school team being able to successfully hand it off to the next school team and to include the parent in all of those because ultimately that's gonna just be such a positive impact all the way down at the end of the at the end of the road, right? Where we get to celebrate the successes and 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 say have fun in college, whatever that might be. And so Exactly. And actually, Jack, you reminded me of a really important piece of the transitions that that I think were very effective. When Samuel transitioned from one school to the next, so when he was in fifth grade at the end of his elementary school career, they he had a great team. He had just such good momentum. People, they all knew each other. The middle school, um, I don't know if it was the principal or the special ed director, but somebody, I think it was the principal, knowing Samuel was coming up, knowing he was a very complex kid, like a lot of kids your, your principals work with, he had he created time for one by one some of the teachers, some of the related service providers to go down to the elementary school for a couple hours at a time and see Samuel in his current element and see what was successful and see how the people that knew him well were working with him and supporting him. That was incredible. You know, that was incredible. And I think we even at times were able to identify the paraprofessional in the spring that he was going to have for the fall, let's say in the middle school or the high school, and they were able to go in uh, or even grade by grade, they're able to go in and see him in his current environment. So they, they knew going into the next year what how they might best support Samuel. The other thing we did is we, you know, the IEP can be a very daunting document. I mean, Samuel's has got to be 30 or 40 pages long. So we worked with the school to create a simple two-page Samuel at a glance. And we worked with Samuel about if, if you only need to know, you know, five things that you can read in 20 minutes or 10 minutes, what are those critical things you want to know? And I think that was also helpful with the, with the new members that Samuel, the new staff that Samuel's going to be working with, to be able to take a real quick look at Samuel's support needs and his personality and things like that. Um, really, really critical. I mean, I can go on and on. There's so many things, but I, I think, you know, listen, like any strong functioning entity, it's it's a brainstorming process. There's no one yes. way, and it and it's right. just thinking what has been successful, what has been challenging, how do we avoid some of the pitfalls going forward, how do we strengthen some of the successes. Um, and again, I feel I feel privileged. Betsy and I feel a real sense of privilege in the sense that we are white. We are not overly stressed economically. We both were able to go to college. Not to say I'm some of those incredible advocates I've known in my life are none of those things. But I do think we have to acknowledge our own privilege. And and so I feel an extra responsibility to pass along all these ideas and all these strategies to other families and schools. And, and hopefully that kids, you know, um, will be well served because I've had people say to me, Educators. Well, it's great that you and your wife advocate so much, but we have these families that don't aren't engaged at all. How? What do we do? And I said, you know what? The school has an even greater responsibility in those cases to support the child and advocate for the child and be there for the child, even if the parents can't be, because the parents may have very good reasons. Absolutely. And and you know, I think what I, where I where I start to think about this entire conversation, Dan, is that the the desire for you and and your family to have a, a a school community where Samuel feels a deep sense of belonging and and those families that you just talked about that that may not have the the, the time to advocate or whatever that is those families those need they need to feel a deep sense of belonging that they belong at that school they belong at that table as well and and I think that all starts from the school leader you know what what's the culture of do all students feel like they belong there and I, I just really appreciate how you just said that right well, we we can do that right now, but it's the school's job and the school leader's job and the school IEP's team job to really make sure that 
we find ways for authentic engagement and belonging. I agree. I agree 100%. And, and I, we've talked a lot about how that happens on kind of an individualized level with, with Sam or other kids. But I also think there's a school-wide level of yes. culture and climate development that's critical. I mean, like I did the film Who Cares About Kelsey, as you mentioned, and Kelsey needed a lot of individual supports because of the trauma she had experienced as a child, because of her ADHD, a lot of things, difficult things in her life. But if she's getting those supports in this one micro situation and then goes out into a school environment that's toxic or where there's a lot of bullying and anger and fights or whatever it might be, she's not she's going to fail. I mean, she's going to she's not going to thrive. And I think that a lot of kids with disabilities do also have, you know, co-occurring issues around anxiety or mental health issues or low self-esteem or have experienced bullying or other traumas. So we also need to really focus on that school-wide culture and climate concurrently. But it's a tough job. I'm, I'm, I feel like I have it easy. I just get to parachute into schools and make films about what the great principals do. And I've met so many amazing principals doing such incredible work. But it is really, really tough work to do everything we're talking about today and, it, so, much, and so much more. Yeah, it is hard work, but it's great work, right? And if it was, you know, I, I just think that the magic happens when it's the right person in the right building that has the focus on the kids and their success. I, I think that's very exciting. All right, Dan, I, I have a couple more questions for you. All right. Sure. And um, this one is just kind of, I'm just curious. Um, this is a, this is a Jack question, right? Okay. So what's currently on your nightstand? Like, what are you reading? What are you, what, are, uh -huh. what, are, what's, what's that for you? Well, that's a great question. I have a few things on my nightstand. Um, I have a, the new Carl Hyacin book just for fun, which is called Squeeze yeah. Me. He's just a funny writer. I'm, I'm usually pretty toasted by the end of the day. I get to bed maybe at 10 and I'm probably lights out 20 minutes later. So I don't have a whole lot of attention span. But my book club is reading a Mario Puzo book who wrote who wrote the, um, the Godfather series. But this one, I think, oh, gosh, what is the name? The Last Pilgrim, I think. Um, I'll have to find it in a second. But anyway, I, you know, but, um, and, you know, occasionally I'll also read books that are around dealing with difficult experiences in life. You know, I mean, you know, we, we, we live and, and have to manage a lot of fear, a lot of a lot of concern for Samuel's health. And, I, and so sometimes I'm also looking for people who have gone through similar journeys where they are dealing with the uncertainty of life as parents or as, as partners and, and what that's like. So I try not to get too, too heavy with it, but it, it's helpful too, to just dive into other people's um, stories of survival in, in difficult times. Yeah. Well, that's what your documentaries have done for us, right? You've, you've taken us into other, other people's journeys and experiences and that's Thanks. great. Okay. Oh, and by the way, it's The Fortunate Pilgrim is the Mario Puzo the book. Fortunate those, Pilgrim. And he, he well, describes he, it as his favorite book, even more than the Godfather series. So I reckon, wow. I like it. I'm liking it so far. I recommend it. So the reason I ask that question is I always like to have a list, right? I keep a list. Okay, well, what's my next book? So now it's going to be that one. So thank you for that. And here's my final question. So what's your one bit of advice or encouragement to a school leader that is either has already begun trying to implement inclusionary practices or, is, or knows that that's their next thing that they're going to tackle and they're ready to do that? What's a, what's a Dan Habib bit of advice or encouragement? Presume competence. Presume competence in every student in your school. And even if a student can't talk or talks in a very different way than is the norm or doesn't move in a typical way or act in a typical way, presume that they're competent and that they can be successful. And, 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 that, and then when you presume competence, you have high expectations for kids. And I think every principal would say that they do, that they, that they presume competence and they have high expectations. But that is a very active practice when you're talking about kids that are systemically marginalized and stigmatized because of our, dis our stigmas around disability in society. So, I, so that's what I would say is just presume competence and, and hold very high expectations for these kids. And then, of course, to back that up, you've got to you know, give them the supports and give your staff the supports to help them be successful. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Presume competence. So I, I feel pretty fortunate, Dan, that Working here at AWSP, I've had the opportunity to to work with you over the last several months, and I, I I will tell you every time I get to interact with you on Zoom, I learn something, and I'm encouraged, and I'm I'm inspired to to support and focus on success for everybody, each and every kid, my office colleagues, all of that. So I I, I want to thank you 
for that which you've done for me and for all of the people in Washington that have been able to experience your films and your thinking and your your strategies. It, it's, it's been a game changer. So thank you for all of that. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I could say I do a lot of public speaking and I, it's very rare that I get to do something like we've done together where I get to do it over multiple months where I have the level of engagement with the people that have been engaging through all these events and, and that I feel like we're having the kind of impact that we hope to have. Um, that it means everything to me. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Absolutely. And, and again, thanks for joining us today. And I can't wait till the next time you and I get to connect. Same here. Thanks, Jack. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Want some support with your inclusionary practices work? Head to our website, awsp.org, where you will find a ton of resources, many of which were talked about in this podcast. You will find on-demand courses, videos to watch with your staff, workshops, articles, podcasts, and more. Can't find what you're looking for? Please reach out to us and we'll be happy to help. How about some professional learning that's relevant and fun? At AWSP, we believe adult learning should be fun and engaging, just like it should be for the students in your building. We promise to never deliver death by PowerPoint and bore you with sit and get learning. You know, a good friend of mine said, professional learning equals self-care. And self-care, that's how you get your power back. So at AWSP, we are all about supporting you and partnering with you on your professional leadership development. You know, one size doesn't fit all. So we provide a number of different ways for principals, assistant principals to stay sharp and improve their skills. We offer content for interns, assistant principals, and principals in all stages of their career. We do that in person when we can, and of course, online. From our cohort-based launching school leadership and building effective leadership networks to our video workshops, we've got something bound to be right up your alley. Visit our website for more information on engaging and dynamic professional learning. This series has been made possible through a generous grant from the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction Inclusionary Practices Project. We hope you've enjoyed this special podcast series on inclusionary practices for the school leader. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSB TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf for all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for kids, and we'll see you next time.